Alan Kring Productions, in association with the Emergent Light Studio, presents the Illinois State Collegiate Compendium, Academic Lectures in Business and Economics. This is Business Finance, FIL 240, for Autumn Semester 2023. Today, interest rate structure. Uh, this is the last new class for uh, original content. Next week is midterm week, so that we'll, uh, I'll say a little about that. But first, your Excel assignment I've given for Chapter 5. You all get 10 points of credit for it. And I've had enough of Excel in Cengage, so you're going to get, you have no more Excel assignments. You just get 10s for the rest of the assignments for the semester. Booyah, uh-huh, yeah, yeah, uh-huh, yeah. Hot damn, yeah. I mean, I, I finally got so sick and tired of first trying to figure out how they got their answers myself and then having like a zillion of you studying what the, okay, so I've had enough of it. And so uh, give it a little bit of time, I've got, I've got to adjust each one of those Excel assignments so that they each get a 10 points and then take the uh, due dates off them as well. So anyway, you're all good on that. Now, as far as the midterm week goes, Monday is review day. You come in, I tell you what I expect you to know for it. That's when you write your study guide. It's just, I want to say you need to know this, 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 and this, and by the way, this, and then I let you ask me questions. Well, is this going to be on the exam? If it's not, I say no. Don't worry about that. If you say, can you show me one of these problems? I'll do that too. And uh, then the, ex uh, the uh, exam itself, you, have, you can use a 6 by 4 note card, both sides, for notes. And you can also, of course, use that financial formula sheet with the ratios on it. And you can use your Excel. It does you a lot of good if you've got those templates ready to go that actually you can just push in the numbers and get answers out of it. That will save you a lot of pain on that part of the exam. So there is, uh, the, it'll, it'll, I'll go through the whole thing, but it's 50 questions, about 50 questions. Some are worth a little more than others and all that. but. That, that's the outline of it. We review on Monday. We take the uh, test on Wednesday of next week. And now that I've seen that some people were using a chat GPT to get the answers for this last quiz, I, I, I will give you the caution. I've got a trap in there that will make a chat GPT answer show itself. So uh, keep that in mind as you're trying to take advantage of our new world of artificial intelligence. There are places where it's quite okay, but not on an exam. Mm. I should talk too much because I just started using uh, my own AI engine to work with me on new artwork. So it's kind of a new world out there for all of us. But anyway, moving along. Uh, first, we look at the numbers. And I bring up a few things here that will have to do with the lecture today. But as you can see, the markets finished just 
it was just another one of those days when there wasn't much movement at all. The Dow was out down a little bit, 0.20%. The S&P 500 was up a lousy 0.02%. And the NASDAQ bounced around and finally finished up 0.22%. But it's really nothing. Now over here, looking at the S&P 500, to see the volume on trading on those 500 biggest companies, the average day over the last year, 3.7 billion shares. Today, 2.3 billion, much lower. How, and that means that there's a lot of money staying off the field for the time being. It, they're waiting to see what comes next. However, it, it has been much lower than that on a number of days. So we're beginning to see a little more of the big dog money pushing in just to test the waters. Right now, they're just putting their toes in. They're not ready to jump headfirst into this, uh, the, econ uh, the economics that are coming. But it looks like there's a little bit more movement toward putting money in. Now, if you go over here real quick, you'll see that the 10-year bond, the yield was up. Whoa, that's decent. Almost seven basis points. Yield goes up, price goes down. That means that investors were selling bonds. Well, where were they putting that money? Little tiny bit into equity, not much. They're still keeping in cash, but they are at least moving out of the safe harbor of bonds, which is a good thing. Now, crude oil, it broke through the resistance at $90 a barrel, and it's on the other side of that now. Something spiked it up into the early afternoon, and then it leveled off, thank heaven. Again, you'll see gas prices, they've already gone up a little bit, they'll probably go up a little more, but I don't see this as anything, uh, a major change. Good news, gold is down, it slid well, it, it, it slid below $1,900 an ounce, which is, uh, in other words, it's getting further and further away from that sort of $2,000 an ounce level that is really the sign that the gold bugs think the apocalypse is coming. So we're safe there, silver down too. Now, both the euro and the pound, the British pound, skidded, depreciated. They depreciate, that means against the dollar, that means the dollar appreciated against them. Evidence that the American economy is strengthening relative to the economy of the Eurozone and relative to the British economy. So there's good news. There are good signs that we are coming into, we're in a recovery phase. We're growing probably faster than Europe and uh, Great Britain and even Japan. Uh, if I look over here, it's opposite. Its chart is opposite. Yeah. The yen depreciated against the dollar, too. So that means the dollar is strengthening, getting back on its feet again. And so that's good news for us. It's good news for you, for jobs, internships, and all that, and for your prospects for the future. On the other side of the Pacific, last night, the Nikkei started out, dropped. It was down hard. And it spent the rest of the day groveling its way back up. It barely broke in 
to positive territory from the opening uh, by the end. But boy, something really knocked the knocked the uh, Tokyo market down hard. London opened later. It's just closed. Uh, it just closed a while, a few hours ago. It did something it's been doing recently. It bounced around bulls and bears pushing against each other. No clear direction. It finished down. The, bull, the bears finally won by the end of the day. But there's a lot of volatility in that market. Uncertainty, as it were. Bulls on one side, bears on the other. And so I don't know what that's all about over there. Maybe it could be the politics going on over there. I don't know. But as we usually do, let's look at the screens. You'll have a screen on your exam so that you can show me you know how to read the screens. So let me first of all do Intel. Now here's an interesting thing. Notice that Intel's trading symbol, this giant, huge corporation, Intel, its trading symbol is INTC, four letters. That's a NASDAQ company, sure enough. Remember I said NASDAQ is almost all small cap companies, but you have some giants there. Intel's one of them, INTLC. You've got Microsoft there, MSFT. You've got Amazon there, AMZN. So you get these trading, you see these giants, and this is one of them that's on the NASDAQ. If we look at it for a minute, it's closed at 34.61, the aftermarket, it's up a little bit. But 34.61, the beta is pointing to a relatively low risk company, below 1.89. Okay, good. Uh-oh, PE ratio is NA. Oh my, Intel is losing money. Its profit per share is negative 23 cents. So its overall profit is obviously negative. It's a losing, it's losing money. Ah, but fortunately it pays a dividend of 50 cents a share for a yield of 1.48 on 3461. So let's have a look at the capital gain on this stock and the dividend. The overall one year holding period gain, uh, uh, yield, return as it were. Okay, so what we would do is we would take the ending value in one year projected by Yahoo, 33.11, and we would divide that by what you buy it at today, 34.61 minus one, and then you times it by 100. Well, I'll be darned. On the stock price, you will lose 4.33%. Well, let's add in the dividend yield, see how that does. Add, add the dividend yield, 1.48%. So your overall loss on Intel is 2.85%. You lose on Intel, even with the dividend included, you lose on this investment. So here's a rule. Don't buy investments that you're going to lose on. Uh, that's just a good rule you should write down. This is one where, you, yes, you can get negative numbers. And this is one of them. Intel is projected 
to lose money for its equity investors over the next year. Well, that's interesting. It's a low-risk stock, but I've shown you low-risk stocks that paid insanely high returns for a one-year hold. And here we've got a low-risk stock that is actually paying negative. This is one you would want to avoid. I mean, what would be, why would it be going down like that? Well, for one thing, the company's losing money, but even more than that, it partially has to do with saturation of the market and also the competition uh, the other big chip manufacturer, AMD, is getting more widely accepted by mainstream uh, computer users, gamers, and there are even rumors of the uh, AMD chip getting integrated with graphics. Uh, with the graphics, so yeah, Intel is having problems. It's not a, bo a big bonus investment. Taking one more, just for some fun. I've mentioned this company before and shown you it, Berkshire Hathaway. Now Berkshire Hathaway has two classes of shares, the adult Berks and the baby Berks. Now as you can see, the if you want to buy an adult, one of the big Berks, BRKA, you will pay $542,495 for one share. I mean, yeah, I'm sure most of you have that. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's stupid for one share. But you get super majority voting rights, and that means that you get to sit in the same room with Warren Buffett at the annual shareholders meeting. Uh, I, don't, I, I think you do. Well, just out of, for last, first of all, notice that this doesn't pay a dividend. And, well, that's not good. Well, no, I mean, this is a company, if you have more than a half a million dollars to buy one share of a stock, you're not worried about getting a dividend check so you can buy a meal for the night. So, no, it doesn't pay a dividend. So all this would be is just capital gain yield, and of course, I closed my calculator. So there's that calculator. So let's get the yield for one year hold. If you, in a year, if you've bought one today, you would be able to sell it for $593,296.00. Divided by what you paid for it a year earlier today for $542,000 for 95.06 minus 1 times 100. Well, that's okay, a 9.36% return on a beta of 0.87. It's not spectacular, but hey, you get to talk about how you own a share of the big Berks. You are an owner of Berkshire Hathaway. Literally, you are. Well, you know, if you don't want to go the fancy route, you can always buy a Burke B, a baby Burke. Those are coming out of the gate at 357.78 at the close. 
So that's a little bit more reasonable. But notice they don't even pay a dividend, which is kind of interesting. But having a look at that one, just to see its capital gain, in a year, if you bought it today, in a year you could sell it for $390.87, according to Yahoo. You divide that by what you pay for it today, $357.78. It's a little up from that in the aftermarket, but minus one times 100. Eh, 9.25%. Again, not stellar, it's low risk, so you expect a lower return usually. So you'd make a 9.25, a respectable 9.25% return over a one year holding period. So, you know, there it is. And I guarantee you, you'll get a question like this on the exam. So there you are. Let's move on here now, that's enough of that. Let me start. Let me show you something here. Show you classic example. Suppose that you have a company and it is considering some projects for investments. Um, oh, I don't know. And we're looking at the return on investment to these different projects, the ROI. So you've got project A is going to have, you're projecting an ROI of 12.50%. Project B is going to come in at an ROI of 7.8%. 3%. Project C is going to come in at an ROI of 9.65%. And Project D is a whopper at 14.89%. Okay. Now, Let's look at different scenarios for the company's weighted average cost of capital. How much it has to pay for funds to do projects. Okay. So in this first scenario, suppose that the weighted average cost of capital is 6.00%. They can get funds at 6.00%. Okay, if they can get funds at 6%, Project A is going to deliver 12.50%. Uh, oh yeah, definitely you'll take that project. It costs less than it will make. Project B, well, they can get money at 6%. This project brings in 7.83%, so you'll take that one too. Okay. Now, Project C, they can bring in money at 6% and get 9.65% for it, so they'll take Project C as well. 
And Project D, well, that's almost laughable. They can get money at 6%. The project costs 14.89%, so they'll take that one, too. Suppose, however, that the weighted average cost of capital rises to 8.50%. Well, in that scenario, they'll still take Project A because it delivers 12.50%, and they can get money at 8.50%, so yes. But Project B, no, because it costs them 8.5% for funds. They're getting only 7.83% return on Project B, so it's out the door. Okay, let's go to project C. They can get money at 8.50%. They can get 9.65% for the investment. So yes. And D, 8.5% money to make 14.89? Absolutely. Suppose interest rates go to 11.5%. Zero percent. Project A is still good because they can make more from it than it cost them. Project B, no. Project C is out the door because it can deliver 9.65%, but funds cost 11.50%. So that one's out the door. And Project D, well, it's still golden. They get money at 11.50%, but they make 14.89, so it's fine. But finally, what if interest rates go to 13.75%? Well, suddenly, Project A is a no-go. You're not making as much as it costs you. Project B is a no-go as well, obviously. Project C is a no-go. The only project that is still a go is the 13.75% pro uh, is the Project D, delivering 14.89% for funds that cost 13.75. First things first, you, you will notice in finance that Oftentimes, we talk about cost. Most of the time, we talk about cost as a percentage. Unlike in accounting, where they talk about cost in dollar terms, we talk about cost in percentage value. We talk about return, not in dollars, but in percentage as well. All of these are rates, R-A-T-E-S, rates. Finance is all about rates today we get to the heart of it, interest rates, okay? That's the first thing. Now, the second thing you, I want you to notice here is what is happening. As interest rates increase, the number of projects that a company will take on will decrease. That's why economies slow down when interest rates rise. The uh, companies projects that they would have certainly taken on become unprofitable because the cost of funds goes above the return that the project would naturally bring to them based upon its risk. 
And that's the third point, a big one. Okay, first of all, in the second point, companies, as the interest rates are rising, companies don't take on as many projects. That means that they need fewer employees. That means that they buy fewer supplies from their suppliers. The economy begins to grind to a halt. We slip toward recession as interest rates rise. That's why politicians get all kinds of excited about having interest rates low going into election years because they want people to be happy. The economy is rolling along, yay, rah, rah. And so they want interest rates to be low. As interest rates rise, that's going to grind the economy down. There's a final subtle point going on here. And we, this simple example illustrates it very well what really happens. You notice that, you remember that I keep talking about the greater the risk, the greater the return? Well, project B would be a low risk project. Project C would be a relatively low project, risk project. Do you notice as interest rates go up, the company is being driven to go only for the Hail Mary, the long ball, the big potential return. But with those greater, in other words, their portfolio of projects begins to lean more and more toward riskier projects higher return projects. This is what causes the bankruptcies that are associated with high interest rates. It's, companies are being driven to take on riskier projects. Yeah, they may win, but there's a greater uh, risk that they will lose. And so, in the end, you end up with companies that are simply being backed into the position where they have to take on high-risk, high-return projects because those are the only ones that can exceed their cost of capital. It, it's, it's almost like a death cycle. As interest rates go up, more companies start to stop taking on projects, less employment. The companies, the projects they take on are higher-risk, higher-return projects, which can then drive the company into bankruptcy. That's why you see bankruptcies rise in recessions when the interest rates are high. Mm. So there's the backdrop. Interest rates, they are the driver of the economy. Now, a lot of finance textbooks, they will talk all about a room and they won't mention the giant elephant standing in the middle of it. And this textbook, to its credit, it does bring up, but it doesn't emphasize the importance of the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve wants, has the power to move interest rates. So, in other words, there is a motivation for the Fed to bring interest rates down, to juice the economy. Well, how do they do that? It's simple. Interest rates are the price of money, pure and simple. You increase the supply of money, the price of it goes down. 
If the Fed wants to cause interest rates to go down, it adds liquidity to the economy. It prints money. That's how it works. That's what it does. If the Fed wants to slow down an economy, it brings cloths money out. It literally will bring it out and shred it, physically or electronically, to make the interest rates go up. So why does the Fed just lower interest rates and print money hand over fist? Well, there's a problem with that. That's how inflation is created. There are way too many people who have an opinion and have a platform who think that inflation is caused by other things. Well, that union jacking up its, way, its demands for wages, that's going to be inflationary. Or these companies are jacking up their prices. That's just causing inflation. Make them stop. Bullshit. Neither of those causes inflation. It is printing too much money for the economy to absorb. If the growth rate of the money supply exceeds the growth of rate of the economy, the real growth rate, well, that's inflation. So we have one example after another in American economic history. The most recent is in your lifetimes. In the later 2010s, the economy was showing some turbulence, that it was going to slip into a recession. Well, the president at that time absolutely bullied the Fed into printing money to lower interest rates to juice the economy. When I say bully, I mean he threatened to fire the Federal Reserve Board of Governors. He couldn't, we don't think he could legally, but the threat spooked the Fed, so they juiced the economy. Print money, print it fast, keep the economy from sliding into a recession. Okay, so that started a liquidity overhang. More money than the economy could absorb. But that was just the first round. The second round was caused by this evil, evil thing called coronavirus. The COVID-19 caused by the COVID sars 2 virus. Spiky little bastard. Yeah. I, it, it was, it, no, that was a lie, that's a conspiracy. Come to my office. My brother is in my office. His ashes are in a box. He was killed by COVID. Don't come to me with that crap. But anyway, okay, so what did the government do? Well, hell, the, we locked down the economy. People couldn't pay their bills. That, would have, that wouldn't have just spiked the economy down. That would have put it in hell. So the government handed out checks, COVID checks, to every man, woman, and child. And they gave these interest-free loans to businesses that a lot of businesses never paid off. They got forgiveness for them. You want to talk about liquidity, the Fed was printing money like there was no tomorrow, which kind of there wouldn't have been. So that liquidity overhang, well, that turned into a ginormous uh, thing, like a shadow. And so, guess what happened? Inflation, that's what we have now, is inflation. 
And it's not a mystery. We just printed too much money. And we had reason to. Certainly in the second phase, we, we had a good reason to do it. Now, the Fed has done this before. What it should do is it should push the money in and then just pull it back out before it causes inflation. Fed doesn't, it isn't quite that rapid. And so we got the inflation. Uh, and that's what the Fed is now doing. It's clawing back that liquidity. Raising the interest rates, that's as they pull in that liquidity overhang and shred that money, supply of money goes down, the price of money, interest rates goes up. That's why interest rates are so stupid right now. It has one more nasty component to it. Now I'm going to write some silly little arithmetic formulas on the board, just, just parameters, not actual numbers. But here's the thing about it, is that when I say inflation, inflation is one thing, but there's something that is much, much worse. It's horrible. You come out of this building after this class, and you're not thinking about anything else. You're just, you're just so hyped on this content of this class. You don't notice one of those killer, maniacal, dangerous things coming at you. Yes, I'm talking about a long border. The long border hits you. Bam! Oh! Ah, ow! That's inflation. Now let's take that, reel it back, and you come out again, and this time it's an 18-wheel Matlack truck. Ding, ding, ding. And you are roadkill. Mm -hmm. That's expected inflation. Expected inflation is a monster. Because we can bring down inflation right away all the liquidity back, but expected inflation stays because businesses and workers don't believe that the inflation is over right away. Let me do that. I'm going to do an exercise here. You, madam. I decide I'm going to hire you for a high-profile high position in my company. 40 hours a week, probably more than that some weeks. I mean, it's a real tough position. So, of course, I'm going to pay you properly. I'm going to pay you $100 a week. I'm a giver. $100 a week. So, after a year, you come in for your annual review, and I say, well, you've been doing darn well here. I am so impressed with you. Darn fine worker. I'm going to, I see that inflation over the last year has been 2%, so I'm going to give you a 2% increase. There's your damn... Uh, raise. Now go back to work. Okay. So, a year later, you come to me for the review. Oh, you're still doing great in my company. I am. I really value you. I see that inflation, the CPI, the Consumer Price Index, was up four percent. So I'm going to give you a four percent raise. Now get back to work. The next year, you come to me for your review, and I start my spiel. Well, I see that. The CPI went up 6%. 
So I'm about to, I'm going to give you a 6% increase and you say, stop right there, fat boy. You call me fat boy? <gasps> okay. You say, I want 8%. I say, what the hell? Do you understand why you need 8%? Every time I gave you a raise, that pr- purchasing power, you had already lost over that year. And then I'm making it up. When it went up 4%, 4% had already happened to your costs. And here I am giving you 4% after 4% had happened. You see, 2, 4, 6, you want the forward inflation, the expectation of inflation. No bank in its right mind is going to use the history of inflation to set an interest rate. They will want to put into your interest rate on your loan what they expect inflation to be in the next period. No business is going to put its prices on the shelf based upon what has already happened in inflation. It will, we will price at what we expect to happen on the shelves while that food is on the shelves or whatever it is. In my own company, I am adjusting 10% up on the last show of the season. Well, inflation is actually coming under control. I'm sure not going to believe that. I'm going to still jack my prices up because I figure my cost of materials that I'm going to pay to replace that is going to go up by 10%. Even though it well, they, the Fed says that it's clawing back the liquidity, so why don't we just believe it? Why, do, why don't we just take inflation out of the picture? Bullcrap. That's not how we work. Those union workers at UAW, they're going to look at what inflation could be, not what it has been. So they're going to ask for a pretty staggering increase in their wages simply because we all base on expectation not on what has already happened. If you came to college with the expectation that you would make what you made in high school or just last year, you wouldn't be here. You are basing this investment on what is going to happen, the expectation. That's why in finance, we can't care about history because markets don't care about history. They care about what's about to happen. And that's the Fed's problem with bringing down inflation. Yeah, we clawed back, but the markets aren't going, oh, well, I guess the Fed's clawing back, so that zeroes out our inflation uh, premium. No, it's not. it doesn't do that at all because we want to see it happen. We're going to base it on our expectation, not on promises. It goes back to the first rule of warfare. Never assume your opponent's intentions, only its capabilities. And that's how we work in business. And interest rates are shaped by the expectation of inflation, not by inflation itself. So here we go with a few happy little equations. And any one of these is worthy of getting a tat on your shoulder, on your arm, something like that. The first one is that there is a real 
interest rate. And I'll even show you where you can find those. The real interest rate. That is just the pure opportunity cost of foregone consumption. It's generally a, a low rate. This is the one that the Fed actually is moving around, is its real rate. We can't see it, though, and I'll explain that in a minute. But it's there. It's sort of like uh, where the supply and demand for money come together and all of that. The thing about it is the opportunity cost of foregone consumption. Okay, think about it this way. You, madam, want to borrow $20 from me. Well, for a year. Well, fine, I'll, get, I'll, I'll lend it to you. But you know what? With, I don't have that $20, so I can't buy my cheeseburger tonight. And so you're going, you owe me for that, man. You, uh, I need a reward for foregoing, for giving up my consumption for a year. That's the real interest rate. It's just pure opportunity cost of what you don't have when you lend money to someone else. That's all it is. It's kind of a, it, it sounds kind of mysterious, but we don't actually see the real rate because it is always, always has attached to it. This is the real interest rate. And it always has attached to it the expected inflation premium. The expected inflation premium, IP. Now remember, this isn't inflation. This isn't the consumer price index. This is the expectation of inflation. So that IP is actually the expected inflation premium. You put those together. We'll, we don't see them apart. They always exist together. And that is what we call the risk-free rate. It's a little bit of a misnomer, but the risk-free rate is the bottom rate. It's like a substrate. All interest rates float on it. And um, this, uh, you're going to see R sub F. It surprisingly has, it shows up in all kinds of different places in the equations of the physics of finance. I used it this morning in an advanced finance class. I, I use it in all of my, all of my classes, R sub F. It has a special place. Now again, we know that it has two parts to it, but we never see those broken apart. It's very much like in physics. We know that an atom has within it protons and neutrons, but we cannot see them. We see the atom itself as an object, even in our most powerful uh, microscopes. We see this all through the universe. We, we know something's in there. It's, it has parts to it but we can't see those parts. Now, interestingly enough, we, we can still measure those two parts, uh, measure those parts, even if we can't see them. 
we can use statistical models to, to peel these apart from each other, just like we can use uh, various instruments to see the action of a proton and a neutron in an atom. We can even see, we could, if, even if we could look at a fundamental a particle like a proton, we know inside it are these things called quarks. We can't see them. We know they're there, and we know how to measure them even if we can't see them. So this, is, this kind of curtain is all through the universe where we know something is <coughs> going on inside, but what we see is not the inside. That seems a little off, but it's actually kind of an important thing in our world. But anyway, okay, the R sub F, it's a risk-free rate. In other words, the least risky thing that you could invest in, if it had zero risk, it would be, it would yield R sub F. That would be its yield. Now, can we actually get R sub F? We've got something that is very, very close to it. Government, short-term government, tre uh, treasury. When the government borrows money, it will pay it back. It's riskless. Now, well, how do you know that? I've heard the government can default. No, it won't. If the government, if you lend the government money, buy a treasury bill, a one-year treasury bill, you lend the government almost $1,000, it'll pay you back. Well, how do you know that? Well, first of all, if it has to, it could increase someone's taxes to get the money. Well, if it can't raise taxes, then the Fed will just print the money to give back to you, which is what it does. And if the Fed's printing machines break, well, we'll just find some a false excuse to attack another country, take it over, and liquidate its stuff. We'll get your money back to you one way or the other, for God's sake. So it is. So a treasury bill, short-term borrowing by the government, would be what we use as our sabbath at any given time. Now let me show you the treasury yield curve. This is the historical yields up to today on the. Uh, treasuries. Now we usually use the one-year treasury as our as a proxy for the R sub F. Now notice that since the beginning of the year, do you see how that's been climbing? That's the Fed clawing back the liquidity. Do you see those numbers going up and up and up? And then they paused and slid a little bit, and then they had to push them up again to keep after the inflation. See it? That's the Fed systematically, one time after another, clawing liquidity back, bringing those dollars that caused the inflation back into the Federal Reserve where they can be shredded physically or electronically. That is the supply of money going down, causing the price of money, interest rates, to go up. Do you see it? All the way down through there. Now notice that it has somewhat stabilized right through here. The Fed is, we're pretty certain that the liquidity overhang is mostly drained out of the economy. 
but the expectation of inflation is still there. So the Fed is probably going to raise interest rates one more time just to convince the markets that the inflation is over. They'll do it one more time. They don't want to do it too much because obviously you saw that chart. Raising interest rates throttles an economy. We, but right now the Fed is going to stay, stay uh, level just to give the economy more room to grow before it does one more interest rate rise by clawing back one more tranche of liquidity so that we are sure we've got it back. The growth of the money supply is matching the growth rate of the economy that needs that money. Now, the other thing is the Fed, in one case, in a staggering case, was clawing back liquidity so hard that it actually caused the economy to almost buckle. It we came, the Fed did something so stupid that we almost went into literally a global financial apocalypse because the Fed had cut the money supply so long, so hard that literally we were two hours away from something that is like almost in a science fiction movie. That was what caused the crisis of 2008. The Fed has quietly let everyone else say all kinds of ridiculous things about what happened. I've got the numbers to show you, and I will do that later in the course. I will show you the Fed had been reducing the money supply so aggressively for so long, even though the economy was growing and it needed as the economy grows, you should grow the money supply at that rate so that there's enough lubricant. The economy was growing at about 2.5%. The Fed had cut the growth rate of the core money supply down to zero. It wasn't growing, and it kept doing that for, well, I know why they were doing it. It was insane what they were thinking. And we literally came in September, on September 15th of 2008, about two hours from a global meltdown, literally. It was bad enough that we got it, uh, we saw it about two hours before it was too late, but geez, silly, that was close. Anyway, back to here, though, we use this one. These rates are R sub real plus, I sub, uh, plus IP, at least as close as we can get to, in real life, to the theoretical model here. So whenever you say, well, you use the risk-free rate for this formula, you go here, we find the one-year treasury rate, and we use that as our proxy, our stand-in for the actual R sub F. That's how, that, that's how we do it. Um, now, as I said, this R sub F is the base rate. It's all interest rates float on that. 
Now, when I say the interest rate, you would know very well there is not the interest rate. There are lots of different interest rates. There's the interest rate on a CD. There's the interest rate on a car loan, a home loan. There's the interest rate on your credit card. There's interest rates on different kinds of investments that you can make. They all are at their base. All interest rates are at their base the risk-free rate. And then on top of that are added some pieces. As a category, we call these the risk premiums or the risk premium. There are three of them. They are what make interest, the combinations for different kinds, for different interest rates are driven by some of them, one or two of them being bigger or smaller, a third one, whatever. They interact to cause an interest rate to form in the market. Now, the first one is R sub D. This one is the default premium. This is extra juice it, that an interest rate would need to cover the possibility of a default on part or all of a debt. So, R sub D is zero for treasury simply because there's no chance of default. On a home loan, there is some default premium. It's not large. It's actually pretty minimal simply because if you borrow money for a home loan and you default on it, the bank has an asset that it will take from you to make itself whole. So in other words, there's an asset backing the loan. So our, the, risk of the default premium is going to be a relatively small percentage percent, one percent, two percent, maybe not even that. Okay, so that's the first one. Now think about this. Let's say a car loan. The R sub D is still low because it's backed by an asset called the car. However, the, the old saying, when you drive a car off the lot, it loses part of its value. So in other words, if you default on a car loan, of course, the bank is going to take the car back, but the value of what they take back will not be near what you borrowed for the car. And so that's why that R sub D will be higher than the default premium on a loan, on a home loan, because the asset backing it will have lost value. Think about this one. A credit card, it's backed by nothing. And a lot of people default on their credit card debt. So R sub D for a credit card, the default premium, is large. That's why you see those stupid high interest rates on credit cards, is because your default premium is so high. Because if you don't pay the credit card, what are they going to do? Repossess your ass? They're, not, they're, they're, they're in a difficult position right there. 
Uh, it's just that's the way it is. That's why you see those ridiculously high credit card rates. It's the default premium, mostly. It's just ridiculous. Okay, so. Now, I've, all, I've traditionally taught the, the next two terms in the opposite order of the book, but I'll do it the book's way for, the, for this time. The next risk premium is the liquidity premium. Let me explain this one, because you probably don't know about this one. It's not even in most people's world of thought. You see, I'm a bank. I lend you money. That's a security. I have bought a security from you, a debt security. Now, typically, I might not want to keep that security. I'd like to have the option to sell it to someone else, get rid of it. Okay? The liquidity premium measures how easily I can sell it to someone else. The classic example is a mortgage loan. Most people don't know this. Okay, let's, let's do this. You come to me, you want to buy a nice home. A nice, nice one, okay? I lend you the money. I'm the bank. I can guarantee you that within a couple of hours, I'll take your loan and all the other people who got loans that day, and I'll bundle them together, and I'll sell them to this trillion-dollar market called the secondary mortgage market, the SMM. You may have heard terms like Ginnie Mae, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac. Those are those markets. They buy chunks of loans from banks every day all over the world tens of thousands of them. In other words, home loans have very high liquidity. I can get rid of them within a couple of hours. I don't have to worry about holding on to them and riding them with all of their problems. Banks are not in the business of making home loans. It looks like they are, but they're not. Well, wait a minute, I make my payments to my bank. No, actually, they are just the servicing agent for the secondary mortgage markets. All over the world, millions and millions of payments are made to the banks, and they just take a little fee out of it and send that to the secondary mortgage market, markets where the original loans were, were placed. The liquidity is just ridiculous. In fact, I, I saw one. I didn't even know this one. Mm. They, I went, uh, it was last year, a, uh, I, I was asked if I would come to a loan closing for uh, a couple. And I said, yeah, I'll go. And I saw something I hadn't seen before. The loan papers were exchanged and, you know, signed and all this, and everyone was happy and should pop the champagne and slap each other on the back. But the loan the bank didn't even make the loan that it would sell to the secondary mortgage market. The bank was merely acting as the agent of a secondary mortgage market. The loan in, in instantly went out to the SMM. It was never ever even in the bank. 
So that's ultimate liquidity. The bank didn't even hold it. It just caught it and tossed it. And I looked at the loan papers. They were not the bank. Usually the bank is on the loan papers and then they use those as their contract and they sell the contract. This time it wasn't even in the bank at all. I don't know how frequently that's being done now, but it's apparently a thing. Pure liquidity. Uh, the loan paper was like cash that could be traded instantly. Okay. Now, on the other hand, like for example, car loans. There is no, I don't think there's a secondary market for car loans. The bank is just stuck with the loan. So for better or worse, that bank and you are married for that loan. They can't dump it off. See, banks really aren't, not as nearly as much as people think. Banks really aren't in the business of holding loans. They originate loans. They do all the, you know, like work with the credit risk and all that kind of stuff. But they don't like to hold large portfolios of loans, especially if they're high risk loans. With cars, they don't have a place they can toss that. Oh, we don't want this car loan. We sell it to these people who love car loans. It's nothing like that. So the liquidity premium is higher because they have to carry it for a, quite a while. They, uh, think about it this way. Uh, I don't know. You, sir. You ever heard that song, He Ain't Heavy, He's My Brother? Well, I ain't your brother, okay? Yeah, you, Google it and you'll hear an old 60s, 70s song. But, okay, you see, if you, I'll pay you to carry me. So if you have to carry me for five years, I gotta pay you a lot. But if you have to carry me maybe 10 steps and then dump me off at the homeless shelter, well, I wouldn't have to pay you so much, right? See, that's the whole thing. The longer the, 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 longer the carry is, the more it will cost. That's why for loans that can't be dumped off quickly, you will charge more than for loans that you can dump off immediately. That's the liquidity premium. That's another reason credit card debt can be so high, uh, credit card uh, interest rates can be so high, is because credit card debt can be really hard to throw off to someplace else. That's why a lot of different loans, now classically, home loans, mortgages, even second mortgages, and a lot like that, they can be tossed off very quickly. Some kinds of commercial real estate loans, they are, uh, the bank is stuck with those. That's why when bank auditors go to different places, their teams to audit banks, one thing they want to watch out for is having too many commercial real estate investment loans. They, uh, and that's, uh, that's just something, you know, it's, yeah, you can do some, you gotta make money, so these are investment loans, so you know, you'll get a high interest rate on them, but at the same time, you don't want those overloading a bank's portfolio of assets simply because 
they are they're they're risky and banks don't want risk we don't want banks to be in the business of having a portfolio that carries too much risk has a high beta if you will so and i should mention here that i just got contacted by the comptroller of the currency which oversees a lot of banks and they have audit teams and uh, an audit team like out of peoria they would go on days of the week, weekdays, to audit banks in their area. And they're there, they look at the books, they do the calculations, they look at the asset, the uh, portfolio of loans and all that kind of stuff, and then they go on to the next one. I got a message from the uh, comptroller of the currency. They're looking again, as they have with me before, for people for internships and jobs. I've placed a, quite a few people with them on the road, you know, you're home every night usually, but you're on the road auditing four days a week, five days a week, your meals are paid, and you get incredible vacation time accumulated, benefits are awesome, and you don't have any problem with getting laid off if the government doesn't have the budget for it because these pay for themselves because these auditor, this, the comptroller of the currency, charges the banks to audit them. So if you're interested in that, just let me know. It's, I mean, every one of them, that, uh, the students that I've placed with them just loves the job and you get raises and you get advancements in your G status and all that through the government. Hmm. But anyway, moving on from that, okay, one last one here. Is the maturity premium. The maturity premium is a reward for the risk of interest rates moving adversely during the life of the loan. It is a reward for the risk that interest rates will move adversely during the life of the loan. It is the reward for the risk that interest rates will move adversely during the life of the loan. Let me, let me give you an example. You, sir, are going to buy your dream home. I'm the lender. Now, this is a 30-year loan. And I've lent you the money at 6%. Now, let's say five years later, interest rates on home loans are 3%. You know what you're going to do? You're going to refinance. You're going to go to a lender and say, lend me the money, I'll pay off that boy here. Uh, so suddenly, I was expecting 6% for 30 years on that loan. I end up having the money back, and I can't in five years, and the only I can charge only three percent because that's the prevailing interest rate. So you have screwed me because you refinanced. Interest rates went down, you did a refi. So in other words, I have 
downside interest rate risk as the banker. I need rewarded for that. But suppose the opposite happens. In five years, I'm expecting 6% for 30 years. Suppose interest rates go up to 12%. Well, I would love to have you pay off that loan. Because I get the money back and I can lend it to someone at 12%. But did you know that the average house is a uh, home, uh, homeowner flips the house in about seven to eight years? It's typical. However, you know that if you flip that home, you'll end up with 12% for your next home. So even though you need to move, in those years, you went from having no kids, now you have six kids, and you had your brother-in-law move in with you, and then his friends and him are t have taken over the garage, and they keep coming out with gas masks on. You really need to move to a bigger house. But like hell you are, you will keep that home until the Lord comes back because you're not going to pay 12%. So I would love to have you pay off the loan so I could lend the money back out at 12%, but you're not going to do that. You're going to stay there. And you're going to dig underground rooms for all of the undesirable kids that you have. You see, I have upside risk. The longer the loan goes, the more likely interest rates are going to do something up or down. If you have a short-term loan, think about it this way. You, madam, you walk up to me with a spray bottle. You come right to my chest and you go, well, I've got a little area in which droplets could land. But suppose you hit me from five feet away. I've got droplets all over. You walk 10 feet away, and I've got them clear from my head down to my toes. And I've got water down these quality sketchers, and I've got water dripping down in my hair, and it's making my Moroccan oil drip into my face. You see how the longer, the farther away, the more likely outcomes in the distance will happen. The maturity premium is the reward for greater risk of interest rate movement during the life of the loan. So in other words, if you get a 30-year home loan, you will pay a higher interest rate than if you get a 25-year loan. That's purely the maturity premium. There's five more years in which interest rates could move adversely to me, the lender. On a car loan, you will pay a surprisingly lower rate on a five-year car loan than you will on a seven-year car loan, simply because of that greater possibility in seven years than five of adverse interest rate movements. That's why the yield curve, even on treasuries, the maturity premium is there. You see the yield on treasuries 
from the one year out to the 30 year look like that? It's because of that maturity premium building the longer the borrowing by the government is. The same with corporate debt. You'll see AAA 10 year debt at a lower rate than the same company AAA 30 year corporate debt. It's just the maturity premium. It builds over a, with longer maturities. Those are the three things that drive interest rates. So that's why you see interest rates for different things at, uh, that are uh, different interest rates for different types of loans. It is the play of those three against each other. Sometimes they reinforce each other, sometimes they mitigate each other, but overall that's why different loans have different interest rates. It's just because of this. Well, I think I've done enough for you today. That's all I have for you. I thank you.